0: Thank you, Brother Howard, and uh, so appreciated. the Last week's uh, Brother Howard's uh, care group, the little little fellowship lunch afterwards, uh, we got to know each other a little better and uh, learn some things that we can be in prayer for for each other and uh, just a great, great, great time together. One of the people in Howard's group is Paula Goddard. She had a knee replacement earlier uh, in the month here, and she will be uh, returning home. Uh, Tomorrow, So we will be getting uh, meals set up for her. I believe Coastal Christian School um, is also putting together meals to her, her employment. And uh, so we would love to help out Paula here as her church family. And I believe uh, Howard and Carolyn can give you more details uh, about that if you're able to serve. And specifically her care group, the the Howard Wiley Care Group. Uh, It's really should be a focus of your responsibility to care for uh, Paula there in your, in your care group there. Last summer, 53-year-old Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park where he disappeared. Park investigators found his body on June 9th where Murphy had fallen 500 feet from Turkey Pen Peak after accidentally stepping into a chute. But he wasn't just on any hike. He was looking for a treasure box of gold and jewels that supposedly was worth up to $2 million. It was buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by an eccentric millionaire named Forrest Fenn. Fenn was an art dealer and he was a millionaire. In his 80s, he lived in in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Still is there today, as far as I know. In a self-published memoir... Ben included a poem that supposedly leads to the treasure that he hid in the mountains. NPR's John Burnett reported in 2016 about the box, this treasure, describing it as an ornate Romanesque box by 10 by 10 inches, weighing about 40 pounds when it's loaded. Ben has only revealed that it's hidden in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border, at an elevation above 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine, a graveyard, or near a structure. Murphy is the fourth man to die looking for this specific treasure chest. Where does desire for treasure and and, and more belongings come out of? I think it comes out of a heart that's not content with where it is, a discontented heart. If I were to ask you this morning, and I am going to ask you this morning, if you sur- surveyed a hundred people in our community and asked them what they needed to make them happy, what would their answers be? And what would you say? What would you say this morning? Money, money, more money than I already have. Right? A bigger house. A bigger house. What else? Happiness. What would make them happy? Health. Searching for, happiness. searching for happiness. Okay, the journey of it, perhaps. Health. Anything else? New, new car, new car, new automobile, right? What else? Good relationships? A better, a better job. A better job, yep. Less toxic people in my life? You were toxic people in my life? Obedient children. Obedient children. <laughs> Some of your moms can amen that. Dads too, right? have well, a variety of answers, and probably uh, one of the answers that none of you said what is the real answer that you would receive is sex. Happiness in America is on a downward trend as you can imagine. The economy seems to be humming in some ways, but Americans are feeling more anxious, depressed, and dissatisfied with their lives That surveys said than they did in 2009, nine years ago. Polarization of thinking is at an all-time high. Is a feeling of malay or worse that grips the nation. Our happiness, what secular researchers refer to as, quote, subjective well-being, is down across the nation, according to the Gallup organization. They did a survey of more than two and a half million Americans examining how people feel in their day-to-day lives across key dimensions of, of their well-being, including physical health and wellness, like you mentioned, having supportive personal and family uh, relationships, financial and economic security, having a sense of purpose, a connection to one's community. There were some gains in some of those specific categories. But the overall results showed a nation where well-being is in sharp decline. And from 2016 to 2017, America saw its largest year-over-year drop in well-being in the 10 years that Gallup has scientifically tracked this data. 21 states registered absolute declines in their levels of well-being, and not one single state surveyed showed a statistically significant improvement in 2017. Article concludes, America is growing increasingly unhappy And the trend toward unhappiness is concentrated in the places that used to be among the very happiest. Whatever the reasons, America's collective psyche is clearly suffering today. At the root is a discontentedness. A discontentedness really goes both ways. A discontented person says that God hasn't done enough for them and that um, I need more from God. And in our passage today, 1 Corinthians 7, the whole chapter actually deals with this idea of discontentedness and being satisfied where God has placed you. What's been laid out so far in this letter is that Paul has explained that the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's dwelled in by the Holy Spirit, and it's grown by God. And the Corinthians' response to that in chapters 1-3 through is to build unity in those truths rather than divisions. We also learned in chapter 4 that real Christian ministers are cross-centered in their message and their practice, including how they live and teaching others how to live cross-centered lives. And in chapter 5, and we saw last week in chapter 6, uh, uh, chapter the rest of chapter 6, he warned them not to be complacent about sin in the church, but to lovingly and humbly expose And discipline those who are sinning without repentance with the wisdom of the cross. Now chapter 7 takes a turn in the book. And it's about sex, marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness. And this morning our focus is going to be in the verses Howard read in verses 1-5. through But before we get there, I want you to see the common theme in all these topics I just listed here in chapter 7 that Paul weaves throughout. And the common theme is a contented heart. The common theme is finding your ultimate identity and security in the Lord. The the controlling part of Paul's answer to their questions in chapter 7 is this. Do not seek or be driven by a change in your status. This this occurs in every section if you look in chapter 7, verse 2, verse 8 verse 10, verse 11, verses 12 through 16, 26 and 27, verse 37 and verse 40, the theme is, do not seek or be driven by changes in your life. And the theme of the paragraph that ties the two parts of this of, of chapter 7 together is verses 17 through 24. And in all these Uh, uh, Admonitions to be satisfied, be content He gives an allowance for some exceptions And the issues might be all different Singleness, divorce, marriage, remarriage, etc There is a motivation behind all of this That Paul wants us to understand And it is to find our joy in the Lord The joy of the Lord is our strength to not operate out of fear, to not operate out of a, a discontented heart, but to operate out of boldness and joy in the Lord. What I'd like you to see here, before we uh, get into our specific verses here, is this idea of abiding or remaining or staying in the calling that God has given you. You see, in verses 1 through 7, he, is, he will say to the married, Stay married with your full married rights. Verses 8 and 9, to the unmarried and widows, the widowers and the widows, it's good to remain unmarried, but there's exceptions. And verses 10 and 11, he gives information to the married, both partners as believers, to remain married. And verses 12 through 16, to those with an unbelieving spouse, remain married. To virgins, those who have not yet been married, it's good to remain unmarried, though he gives exceptions. And in verses 39 and 40, to married women and widows, the married are bound to the marriage. When, it's, when widowed, it's good to remain that way, but there are exceptions. But where he really nails down this idea of contentedness and finding our joy is in verses 17 through 31. In verse 17 he says, As God has distributed or assigned to every man, as the Lord has called everyone, so let him walk. And so ordain I, or direct this, in all the churches. See, what he wants us to understand is, is, is he repeats this idea, is to make the point that there is something that is more important about our identity, who we are in Christ, than our present circumstances that we might find ourselves in. It is our relationship to the Lord and our response out of that in serving Him that is to drive us. First and foremost, we are not single. We are not married. We are not widowed. We are not divorced. We are people of the Spirit. We are people who have the wisdom of a crucified Savior that we have been joined to, a risen Lord. And so we are people who have been called out from sin, and that is what we place at the center of our lives, not our relational status. And out of that core, we are to serve God, Paul saying in verse 17. Paul will show us how we serve him out of those different circumstances—the joys, the hurts, the imperfections of our closest human relationships. All those do uh, is—all those serve to remind us that what matters most is pleasing God in all of them, because our relationship with Jesus cannot be severed; we cannot be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. We serve Jesus because of our great calling to Him. That's what defines us. That's what shapes our attitudes and emotions. We've been freed by being washed. We've been set apart. We've been declared in right relationship to God to be His servants. And time is short to serve Him. And that will come up over and over in verses 17 through 31. So now in our text, chapter 7 and verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This is a new section of the letter. It's it's, it's signaled by the opening phrase the matters you wrote about, the things you wrote to me about. And this now about... The things that they had probably sent a letter with some specific questions to Paul about. <clears throat> Ironically, it doesn't seem they sent a letter about the things that were going on with unity and divisions and sexual immorality. Um, and uh, and the things that Paul has addressed uh, that's going on in their gatherings in chapter 14. And the drunkenness that's happening as they're communing with the, at the Lord's Supper. They don't seem to write questions about that. But they have some questions that they write about. And the first one is in chapter 7. Verse 1. The next one is in chapter 7, verse 25, where Paul again will say, Now concerning. So it's referring to something that they wrote, had a question about. Chapter 8, verse 1, Now is touching things offered to idols. Chapter 8, verse 4, as concerning the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed to idols. So he just picks up on that again. Chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16 and verse 1. He talks about the collection that was to be sent uh, 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 to, to the other churches there to help them in their poverty. And then chapter 16, verse 12, a question about Apollos and what his role was. So this now about, these concerning questions, Paul's going to try to answer here. And in chapter 7, uh, through really the end of the book, here's generally the, answers he's going, the questions he's going to be trying to answer. Is it well for a man not to touch a woman? Sexually. What about widows and widowers? What about divorce? What should a believer do who is married to an unbeliever? What about single people? Can we remarry after a spouse dies? Can we eat food that the pagan temples had offered to idols? And so, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, concerning the things wherever you wrote for me, and then now he will quote, what they asked him about, or what their statement was. Here was their statement, "It is good for a man not to touch a woman." So what Paul's saying is this: With reference to the matters about which you wrote, quote, "Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman?" Paul will now lay out, in verses two through five, his answer to that. So here's, 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 where, here's where Paul is, is, is dealing with. You see, Satan likes to work in pendulum swings. And in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, there were people who said, I can do whatever I want to do. I can have a relationship with a prostitute. That's okay. My body's not going to be here one day, and I can do whatever I want to do. So he's dealing with those who would be called libertines. Those who would say, we have a license, we have permission to do whatever we want to do sexually. And He has dealt with that very clearly. We looked in chapter 6, verse 12, 12 through 20 and said, no, that's wrong. Now the pendulum has swung some, uh, another way in the church. And there are people who would say, well, sexual relations are all around wrong. You can be married, but you can't engage in those activities. And so now he's turning to people who are people who are legalistic. License and legalism are two sides of the ditch, right? There is the libertines and there's the ascetics. For those of you who know what those, those terms are. Libertines say anything goes. The ascetics say the body's evil. So true spirituality, spirituality means if you're married, then mar, mar, marital relations should be avoided. And so what Paul is doing here is he is speaking to Christian spouses who apparently have chosen to deny the validity of any sexual relationship in their marriage. And his reply is to stand on what he has already written and will write in other passages about his affirmation of, yes, this is a good gift to be enjoyed. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul's talked about the goodness of the one-flesh marriage relationship. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, he states that forbidding to marry is one of the end-time signs of turning away from God. And in Hebrews chapter 13, 4, another writer says that marriage is honorable and the activities of the marriage bed are pure. And it's to this view that Paul says in verse 2, Nevertheless... To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So in answer to their question, is it well for a man to abstain, a man and a woman to abstain from this type of relationship in their marriage? Paul says, no, it is not in verse 2. And so his first point here is this. Number one, to find joy in the gift of married love. To find joy in the gift of married love. He says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, avoid sexual immorality, that the activity of the thoughts and actions that is outside the bounds of God's design in marriage of a man and a woman, in a one flesh relationship, Paul says, no, the marriage is the proper setting for that. He says, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. That word have is the idea of the one flesh marriage sexual relationship. You can see this in chapter 5 in verse 1. There is one among them who had his stepmother as his wife. And Paul doesn't mean um, that they're sleeping in opposite bedrooms. He's saying this is a real problem. And the idea have here is the privileges of marriage. So Paul is saying that sexual activity in thought or action is out of bounds, it is wrong, it is sin, outside of men and woman, man and woman, covenant marriage, but it is good, and it is acceptable, and it is encouraged in marriage. The husband is to enjoy that privilege with his wife, and the wife is to enjoy that marriage privilege with her husband. Because it is not the fire that is the problem It is the fire the specific place where it is If the fire is out of the fireplace in your house You've got a problem, right? But it's fine for that fire to serve where it's supposed to be And we need to understand The wisest man who lived on this earth Besides Jesus Christ, Solomon In Proverbs 25 To see that this is a good thing Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5 Proverbs chapter 5 Solomon writes and warns about sexual immorality. He warns about people who will lead you astray in this way. And he even talks about this idea of fire. Can you heap coals of fire in your uh, clutch coals of fire yourself and not be burned? Paul says that's an improper use. But but friends, while we must warn about the improper use, we must also encourage the proper use. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15 Paul says this. This is his antidote to sexual immorality. He says, here is what God's design is. Drink waters out of your own cistern and running waters out of your own well. Let your fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only your own and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with a wife of your youth, So now we find out who he's talking about. Your own. Your own spouse. Let her be as the loving deer and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and be ravished always with her love. And why will you, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his goings. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself and he shall be held with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. What what, what Solomon is saying is enjoy this with your spouse. And so this relationship of marriage that's reserved for the privileges of covenant marriage is not something that we need to chuckle about. It's not something that we need to sneer about. It's not something we need to frown on. It is not discouraged, it is not silenced, it is not hidden, it is rejoiced in, it is commanded even, and it is proclaimed. Have you ever heard somebody say, You need to stay pure until marriage? There's a problem with that statement. It assumes that when you're married and then you engage in those relationships, then you're not pure. But God's plan is for you to stay pure your whole life in your singleness and then in your marriage. And the way you stay pure in your marriage is not inhibited by your sexual relationship with your spouse. So Paul Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, enjoy that part of the marriage relationship in verse 2. Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Teenagers, singles who would like to be married someday, look forward to this. When you are married, Husbands and wives, rejoice, practice, and thank God for the gift He has given you to enjoy each other in this way that is reserved for marriage. We don't need to be shy about it. We don't need to be bashful about it. We don't need to be embarrassed to talk about it. We don't need to be ashamed to mention it. We can speak about it in the same volume and the same frequency And the same terminology that God Himself, the Creator, says about it in His Word. And He says a lot about it. There's a whole book on married love, Song of Solomon. And we need to remember that when He brought Adam and Eve together, He did not add to His prohibition of the eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree with forbidding them to engage in married love. And sometimes it seems like our mentality may be that way. Like it's a dirty or wrong thing for married couples to enjoy that, but rather he commanded them to be one flesh, and he did so before the fall of man. He did so in a perfect world he designed, over which he declares that it was very good. So let me ask you: Let me ask you, what is your attitude about sex? Is it your parents' view? Is it the world's view? Is it how you were raised? Or is it God's view? That it is a glorious thing, a gift from God, to be used in the honorable state of married life, and He rejoices when it is. So be content with sexual activity in the marriage relationship, because this is God's design. Do not go looking for it outside of your spouse, and serve your spouse in this way. Now notice what he says in verse 3. But the husband render to the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife to the husband. On verse 3, he says, On the basis that there are temptations to sexual immorality around us, but sexual activity in marriage is totally in balance, God tells us how to approach this gift that we're to rejoice in. And his second point is this. Not only find joy in the gift of married love, that it is a gift, but secondly, find joy in the service of married love. If you're a serious Bible student, you know that one of the ways you can understand the meaning of a passage is by looking how it's translated in different uh, different ways. And serious Bible students will compare different Bible translations to see how Greek scholars have translated the meaning of different passages. And some of your translations had translated the Greek in verse 3 like this. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Others have rendered the translation, the Greek, this way. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. It's a very literal translation. Others have translated it this way. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Another is translated this way the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. You notice the theme here in those different translations here and and, 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 and and agreement here, this sense, this theme of duty. And the word translated render does indeed have the idea of obligation. It's literally the word render literally means the payment of what is due. It implies that married couples are indebted to one another in this sexual relationship. The marital relationship is a, is a positive right that each partner is expected, listen, to give as a gift to the other. The husband and the wife are equal in this regard. This is different, very different than the Romans' view of, of this in those days and certainly different than our world's today, isn't it? In other words, either partner is to demand those rights, rather, they are to give those gifts to the other. Because friends, if you have a gift, and you've taken the time to give someone a good gift, a gift that is given in love is always seen by the person who gave it as something that's very valuable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be giving it. And a gift is a result of free choice. It's not if It's coerced, it's not a gift, is it? And so the idea here is that the husband in verse 3 is to bring his gift to serve the wife and the wife is to bring her gift to serve her husband. Now notice the third and final thing in verse 4. The wife has not power or authority of her own body but the husband. And likewise also the husband has not power of his own body but the wife. Defraud or deprive you not one the other. Except it be with consent... For a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency or your lack of self-control. So, his third point in this passage is to find, not only find joy in the service of married love, that this special relationship in the bed is how you serve as a way to serve your spouse, but thirdly, find joy in the surrender of married love. Surrender of married love. Husbands, your body is her body. Wives, your body is His body. You don't belong to yourself. You made the promise, the covenant on that wedding day, and your vows in marriage that you are theirs, did you not? And your body is not your own. We know from chapter 6 at the end, it is purchased by Jesus Christ at great cost. We know for Romans chapter 12, your body is to be presented as a living sacrifice, and it is your spouse's. It is not your own. This means that you have to live a crucified life. This means in this specific relationship, in this topic that we're talking about this morning, that you must put down the self-life, and you must put on the surrendered life of Christ. And Paul shows us that this applies to the marriage bed. Your body is theirs for mutual gratification and intimacy. It is also interesting, again, to note that there is expected mutuality, equality here in this specific relationship between the wife and the husband in Christian marriage here. Each partner in the marriage has authority over the body of the other. There's no power plays like, give me what I want and then we'll do this together. There's no form of abuse. That's unthinkable in this passage. Each partner can say to the other, I have gifts and I have rights based on verse 2. And I have authority over your body, you have authority over my body. And so the granting of these gifts and these rights and powers to each partner on an equal basis, basis is amazing, designed by God. And friends, the right to the marriage bed is assigned by God in your marriage covenant. This act of marriage isn't a bargaining chip, it's not something to be used to deprive the other when you're irritated with them, it's not something to be withheld when you want to pout. It's not something to use to try to punish the other. Because if we're taking the language of verse 2 and verse 3, specifically the render, the duty there, the debt you owe, you are stealing from your spouse what God has given to them, if it's used that way. And you're stealing pleasure, you're stealing enjoyment, you're stealing intimacy from your spouse that was rightfully assigned to them by God in your marriage covenant. So it is dishonoring to your spouse and it is shaming of the dignity of what God says is honorable to withhold intimacy. And no excuses will work. So what Paul says is on his apostolic authority in verse 5, deprive you not the other. He literally is saying in the original language, stop it, stop depriving one another and stop it now is what that word means. Bring this nonsense to an end. Because what Paul is saying is this. He says that after he gives the exception, and then he says, and you come together again in verse 5, he says that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency, for your lack of self-control. What he's saying is this, friends. By withholding your body from your spouse who owns your body and you own their body, you may actually be stoking the fires of unfaithfulness in the marriage bed. You may be used by the evil one who has an agenda to turn up the intensity of temptation to your spouse. God the Creator and Designer knows that sexual drive is a powerful force to be used in marriage. We also know the evil one is a powerful enemy. And he is ready with a can of gas to pour it on the fires of desire, and he may use that God-given gift of the sex drive that a spouse may be closing off to destroy your spouse in your marriage. And friends, if you have bitterness, or you're, you're using this act of marriage like a bargaining chip, you have bitterness or resentment, what you are doing, an unforgiving spirit, what are you doing is you're letting the evil one crawl into bed with you and put up a divide and you may be stoking the fires of unfaithfulness. That's what Paul is saying. Now certainly in all of this, there needs to be a sensitivity of spouses to one another. That's why Paul tells husbands in Ephesians 5 that they are to love their wives as their own bodies, to nourish and cherish them. But there is only one exception here that Paul lists for abstinence in marriage. And it is this. Except it be with consent. So a mutual agreement. Both husband and wife agree. And he says, for a time. So it is for a limited time. And he says, that you may give yourselves the fasting and prayer. So it is a specific spiritual purpose. And he says, and come together again. To come back to that intimacy again. Well, friends, you're saying, well, there's a lot of commands in there, there's a lot of do this, don't do this, where is the power for this? Friends, I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ gave His own body for us as sacrifice on the cross. Our Lord gave us His own body and allowed it to be broken for us so we could find life. Jesus Christ poured out His lifeblood for us so we could be set free. And Jesus, my life united to Jesus, is the power for change in my marriage relationship in this. Because He has shed His love abroad in our hearts by faith, we can obey His Word and loving our spouse in the correct way in this topic this morning. We can have our selfishness crucified with Him to be raised in life to serve our spouse in this way. In closing, if there has been dysfunction in your married life in this topic arena, the very first place to start in this, as much as your responsibility is, you need to repent to your spouse by asking forgiveness. By confessing that sin of selfishness to the Lord. And changing your thinking and behavior in this area by the Lord's help. Friends, that is a Spirit-filled, a Christ-like controlled marriage and a biblical marriage. And that's to be brought down even into our marital intimacy. See, Jesus Christ is to be worshipped as Lord in all areas of life. And this includes the marriage bed. Let's pray.